Herb Albert and the 200 Brass from Carson Testuli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance. That is his weekly Monday appearance. It is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And what it follows as he does every week. Dave Cameron analyzes all baseball. Uh, he analyzes all baseball in this particular case. What he does is he he's analyzing all he's analyzing all baseball, but he focuses much like an owl might focus from miles away on its prey. Uh, Dave Cameron does that on Mookie Betts, not to hurt Mookie Betts because well for a number of reasons not to hurt Mookie Betts, but to better understand him. And what follows, what I can tell you is that Dave Cameron analyzes all Mookie Betts. Mookie Betts is a second baseman who's playing right field. What can we expect him to contribute defensively is a thing we discuss. Mookie Betts is a player who never spent much time on the top half of those top 100 prospect lists that are released every preseason. What do we know about that sort of person? He's simultaneous to that. Simultaneous to that, he's someone whose bat has played. It has played at a number of different levels now. He makes contact. He walks. What does that mean for Mookie Betts' future? All of that is answered. All those questions are answered by Dave Cameron in What Follows. Also, anyone who listens to this edition of the podcast will uh, be treated to an insight about the manner in which Fangraphs plans on publishing content on Tuesday, which is the day that the United States plays Belgium in the World Cup. We won't be publishing any content tomorrow during the World Cup because <laughs> we know that none of you are going to be reading the site. Fangraphs audio it features managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Good. You ready to talk about baseball? I am. Good. Well, we're going to do a podcast about it. Good. Good. Very good. Uh, yes. first, first of all, um, you, you, I think you're, I would describe you as a curious person. Would you describe yourself as a curious person? Uh, curious in that I ask questions or curious in my appearance? Okay, sure. Simultaneously, but, both. But both are probably accurate. Yeah, right. And I think you're also a person, a person I think we could say with an analytical bent of mind. Would that also be fair? I think so. Okay. Well, I would like to share with you something that um, has struck me as curious about uh, my week in or so in Berlin, Germany. Okay. And I would like you to tell me, uh, I guess, your reactions to it. Okay. And this is, uh, so far as I know, this, this applies to all of Berlin. I don't know if it applies to all of Germany. Uh, it certainly applies to the neighborhood in which I'm staying. In this neighborhood, um, you are allowed, and I, I believe all of Berlin, all of Germany, I think, you are allowed to drink on the street. Okay. Um, you are allowed to walk down the street with a beer or, you know, a small bottle of wine in your hand. Um, and I and I could say that you you're absolutely allowed to do this in Paris, France, to the best of my knowledge, but no one does it. People will sometimes be in a park, like one area of a park and have it. But here in Berlin, people just um, very much walk down the street with a beer in their hand like you would see people do in the States frequently with like a like a mug of coffee. Okay. All right. Here's the thing. Not only are you not allowed to do it, as, as you are not allowed in many places, what people obey this rule to a startling degree is jaywalking. So while I see people drinking everywhere, 
if there is a if there is a red walk sign, you know, don't walk sign, everybody obeys it. And I and mind you, I am in a neighborhood that is full of uh, people you might describe as of a sort of punk rock um, a type of uh, you know of certainly physical appearance, and I would assume a sort of punk rock frame of mind. And yet, even still, they will obey the letter of the law when it comes to jaywalking, even though uh, there are absolutely no cars to be seen in either direction. Do we know what the penalty for jaywalking, if caught, is? Like, is it like dismemberment? Right, because right. So, so that's so that. So here's an example of what, what you're saying. You're saying maybe the punishment is unduly harsh. I mean, maybe not unduly if it's working. <laughs> maybe it's duly harsh. <laughs> yeah. And then the Germany has figured out how to stop jaywalking by having some like insanely uh, over the top uh, uh, disincentive to to cross the street if it's not your turn. Right. Well, so and I don't and I think that that is not the case. I think that okay. the the monetary fine is ten euros, I believe. However, okay. I've asked multiple people about this, both native Germans and foreigners. And they say that, and they all said the same thing. Not necessarily that they believe it, but the reason why it is so strongly felt is, and I quote, because of the children. Is that the mm-hmm. reason that people will not cross the street is because it sets a bad example for the children? I have an alternate theory. Okay. And it actually ties into your other point. Okay. In America, people are, uh, they, they very quickly want to get to a place that has beer. They are in a hurry to get to a bar of some sort or okay. some kind of liquor store yeah. or their house that they've previously stocked. In Germany, you already have said beer right. in your hand. So you don't have the sense of urgency to get to an alcoholic establishment. Okay. You can take your time walking wherever you want because you already have the thing you're walking You towards. already have the beer. So if we found okay. – if we were to essentially – to monitor uh, people who are drinking – Already versus people on their way to drinking, we we might suppose, given your hypothesis, that if anyone is to uh, to commit a jaywalking offense, that they are most likely without beverage and that they're on their way to go get it. I, I think what we can conclude from this <laughs> is that drunk driving is terrible, but drunk walking is amazing. Mm-hmm. So apparently, uh, we need to have more drinking while walking uh, to reduce crime and. Uh, jaywalking related accidents well while drunk walking is definitely or drunk driving is absolutely dangerous to people around drunk walking is mostly just a source of amusement right for other people yeah uh we need like we have mothers against drunk driving we need fathers for drunk walking for drunk walking (laughs) (laughs) all right i don't know i i don't know if any necessarily that's going to receive a lot in the way of Funding. Well, I bet the the bars would probably chip in. Right. Yes, they. Yeah, they probably would. I think, and people who like seeing a music like a music right. spectacles. Exactly. Mm, let's see. Okay. Uh, in terms of topics, I'll let you. I'm not going to tell you which, but I'll let you choose. Uh, I have. There's topic A right there, uh, and there's topic B. I've decided. And there is topic b- 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 topic C. Which one do you want? Uh, whichever one is about Mookie Betts. Okay, that was topic A. Yeah. All right, there we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mookie Betts. Yeah. Uh, he made his major league debut uh, last night as we're talking, uh, Sunday night, at a position which I believe at which he started all of three times or tw- uh, two times in his entire minor league career. Right, right field. Yeah. 
Yeah, here, here's a here's a question, right? Now we have uh, with regard to just we, we have uh, when we're formulating war, right? We're calculating defense. We have sort of generic um, modifiers for, mm-hmm. for position, right? Uh, yes. Defensive, defensive, defensive adjustments, adjustments. Because yeah. we know, generally speaking, well, is this the reason we know that a, a shortstop uh, is better defensively than a right than a right fielder? The, I would say we know that the population of shortstops is better than the population of right fielders. We don't know that an individual shortstop is better than an individual right fielder, but we know that the players who are picked to play shortstop are better defenders as a group than the position than the players who are picked to play the outfield. Right, and so generally speaking, uh, we could assume that someone who's already playing shortstop, if if the coach, uh, if the team were to move him to right field, we would assume that say an average shortstop would be an above-average right fielder. Does that seem fair? Yeah, I think yes. I would say that that's not always going to be true, but more often than not, that is probably true. Okay. And yeah. yet, uh, we can also assume, we know that that uh, there's something strange, right, about moving Mookie Betts, who for the most part has played second base in his minor league career. I think he's made appearances uh, maybe at shortstop, and then recently, um, since it's become clear that his – Offensively, he's an animal. Uh, I think you know the Red Sox have been playing him a bunch of different positions. Uh, he's mostly played center field, and then I think they moved him to right field starting a few days ago when it became clear that Shane Victorino was not going to be able to return from the disabled list anytime soon. Okay. And uh, so now, originally, I think Betts was being groomed as a Jackie Bradley replacement since Jackie Bradley hasn't hit at all. And then when it was clear that Victorino was going to be out for an extended period, he transitioned into a Shane Victorino replacement. Okay. Now, what do we expect from the information we have? What about uh, def- um, positional adjustments? About uh, the nuances of second base say versus the nuances of right field? What do we know about Mookie Betts as a right fielder? What what can we assume about Mookie Betts as a right fielder defensively? So I think the things we know about Mookie is that he's fast and athletic. So then you can infer that essentially from his stolen base totals and kind of his offensive skill set. Uh, so we have an above average athlete, which is, you know, one of the main prerequisites for being a good defensive outfielder. Uh, we think he has a pretty strong arm and he made a pretty good throw last night, uh, at a second base that showed that the arm shouldn't be a huge issue in right field. Uh, and might even be a, a above average arm. Uh, so this isn't a position where, you know, some short stops where you, you know, they get moved off the position because they don't have the arm strength to play there. If they move to second base because they have a weak arm, that's probably not a guy you'd want to put in right field, or at least the teams traditionally would not want to put in right field. Betts doesn't seem to have that problem. His throwing arm seems fine. Um, I think we saw last night that his routes are, you know, a work in progress a little bit, uh, and they're going to take some time for him to, you know, learn uh, kind of when to dive and when to play a ball in front of him. Uh, but this seems to be the thing that doesn't take too dramatically long. And not that Mookie Betts is as fast as Billy Hamilton, but I think we can look at the transition that Billy Hamilton made from shortstop to center field and how he's already rated as one of the best defensive center fielders in baseball and has really been a fantastic defensive outfielder for the Reds this year and see that, you know, speed and athleticism uh, for a player who isn't, you know, just atrocious at reading the ball off the bat, can translate into outfield range fairly quickly without a lot of experience. Yeah, and I, I, just as an aside, I don't know if it's happened quietly or, or um, 
you know, I, I mean, I consume fan graphs. When, I mean, in terms of baseball analysis, predominantly fan graphs. Uh, therefore, I don't know if it has happened quietly, but Billy Hamilton is a league average offensive player now. He, he basically had a monster June where he hit a bunch of home runs, which helps. And, uh, you know, he's he's always been a stolen base guy. Uh, and so obviously the base running value is, is going to make up for the fact that he's a below average hitter. Uh, but when you're hitting home runs and doubles and, you know, making some contact and you add in all the rest of the things Billy Hamilton can do, uh, a pretty valuable player. Right, including, uh, it seems, as you as you noted and as the numbers suggest, and of course, uh, citing a, a half season's worth of defensive metrics uh, always uh, merits a huge asterisk. But um, it seems to do a lot of uh, sources that are suggesting that he's uh, an above-average defensive center fielder already. Yeah, I mean, I think that's where most of the evidence lies. I mean, I think when you look at a guy who's almost certainly the fastest player in baseball, you would expect that he would cover more ground than an average outfielder. So you certainly want to regress that half seasons worth of UZR DRS, but at the same time, you don't necessarily need to regress Billy Hamilton back to league average because your expectation, based on his offensive skill set and his speed and his athleticism, is that he would be an above average defender. So maybe instead of being a plus 20 center fielder, we regress him back towards a plus 5, and we think that the you know half season of defensive performance makes us think that maybe he's a plus 6 or plus 7 or plus 8 or something in that range. Uh, where, you know, we wouldn't want to conclude yet that Billy Hamilton is the best defensive center fielder in, the ba- in baseball, but based on what we know, I think it's fair to say that Billy Hamilton's probably a, a well above average defensive center fielder and maybe the best defensive center fielder in baseball. We'll just have to wait and see. Right. You, you mentioned uh, some of the, I guess, characteristics native to a right fielder versus a shortstop, maybe a second baseman. I'm curious, and I, again, I'm asking you this off the, um, spontaneously, so you know, if you can't think of anyone, that's fine. But I'm curious if you can think of a, a player whose skills would not necessarily, or from the past, would not necessarily translate well to another position, even though he played his own position very well. And and one one example, this, this I don't know if this is the best example, if this is a great example, but sometimes I think of Chase Utley, for example, right. uh, who has who for years, you know, certainly during his peak, was uh, I believe received some of the the best overall defensive marks uh, in baseball. You know, between the positional adjust, adjustment and between the you know the runs he was saving as a second baseman, and yet maybe because of the arm, to think of him as a shortstop. Um, uh, he would have actually, he he would have lost more runs than you might expect a second baseman would going to shortstop. Right. No, I think there are players like that who are best fit at the position they play. I think if you're, you know, and this goes back to your original point where you said, you know, can't, do we know that shortstops are better than than right fielders? I think like Johnny Peralta would be a good example of this. The guy who can play shortstop is actually a, de- a better defensive shortstop than people give him credit for uh, because he's good at things like positioning and throwing and, uh, you know, he gets to the ball, he makes the plays on the balls he gets to, he's not the rangiest guy in the world. I think, I think if you put Johnny Peralta in the outfield, he might be below average. Uh, you know, he's not particularly fast. He doesn't cover a lot of ground. Uh, the things that make him a good defensive shortstop don't really matter in, in the outfield. Uh, and I think we've seen him play the outfield before and it hasn't gone particularly well. Um, so I would suggest that a guy like Peralta or maybe Utley are, are uniquely skilled to play the position they're playing and would not follow all of the standard positional adjustment if moved somewhere else. They wouldn't be, they wouldn't get a bump from going to play the outfield, um, and they might not even uh, get a bump from going to play first base. I mean, I think you know, there's a uh, kind of the unique skill set they have works where they're playing, 
Um, we there are certainly some players who have the skill set where you know it's just based on the the population that they're gaming compared to. So maybe they have you know average range, average arm, average everything across the board. So therefore they're a below average shortstop, but above average second baseman just because second basemen aren't as good as shortstops. Um, but I think there are guys like Peralta and Utley who kind of fit into the position they're playing and shouldn't be moved. Well, it, it, and I don't know if this is the case with Peralta, right? But like, it seems uh, not particularly controversial to say that a big part of playing infield is hands. Correct. Uh, and hands seems like I, I don't know. I, mean, I don't know how comfortable you. I'm I'm an idiot, obviously, but uh, how comfortable do you do you feel? Uh, announcing that this player does or does not have good hands. I mean, how how long, how many repetitions do you think you need to see? You know, how many does a scout need to see? Where, how does that happen? How does is there a way we can judge it uh, objectively? I think it's the kind of thing that you need to see over several years because it's the kind of thing that can be improved. Uh, so I think, like you know, when I remember B.J. Upton coming up to the minor leagues as a shortstop, uh, the Rays let him play all the way until AAA. Uh, because he kept making a bunch of errors, and he wasn't a good defensive shortstop, but there was so much natural athleticism, they wanted to see if it would stick, and they wanted to give him time to improve, and I think for three or four years, he was making, you know, 40, 50 errors a year, um, and eventually they decided, okay, we've we've given you every chance, this isn't getting better, you're going to the outfield, and he became a very good defensive center fielder, uh, similar to Billy Hamilton, um, but there are guys who do improve. I think uh, Brad Miller is an example of a guy who is, um, considered a, you know, a good enough athlete to play shortstop, but had a significant air problem in the minor leagues. I think in double A made like 25 airs or something along those lines. Um, and you know, just routine plays, he would botch them. And so it was kind of a, similar to BJ Upton and, and Billy Hamilton. And where you look at it and say, physically, he should be able to do this, but mentally or whatever it is, he's not capable of of playing the position on a reliable basis. He gets to balls, but but he doesn't convert enough of them into outs. Uh, but then, you know, he's improved, and now he's a, a good enough defensive major league shortstop, maybe even above average major league shortstop. So I think these are the kinds of things that you can look at and say, this is a deficiency now, but it can be worked on. It doesn't always improve. It's not a guarantee that it's going to improve. But I don't think you can look at it and say, you know, prospect X has bad hands, uh, makes too many errors, he needs to be moved off the position because this is the kind of thing that can be coached. As a as a GM, as a fake, you're not a real GM. But if were you a GM, um, or someone say who was uh, uh, in charge of uh, uh, you know minor league talent, your team's organiz- within an organization, are you are you perhaps more enthusiastic about a player or less enthusiastic about a player like like Brad Miller you just mentioned, or you know like BJ Upton as well, then you would be. And, and this is a sort of player. Who, who clearly has the physical talents to play the position, but is prone to errors, which might be which might um, might be of the sort that, that involves the hands, just the handling of the ball, or might have to do with um, repeatability of throws. Um, or would you prefer? And this is just a name that comes to mind, but there are a bunch of these types of guys. Um, I, I always think of Greg Garcia when I think of this. Type. Greg Garcia, of course, in the uh, the St. Louis Cardinals organization who's played a bunch of shortstop in the minor leagues, but is not really <laughs> – the Cardinals have been reluctant, even despite the fact that they've had players in the past like – you know, I mean, they had almost like a whole season of Pete Cosma last year, didn't they? Yeah, he, he started the World Series. <laughs> yeah, right. So so obviously, you know, Greg Garcia, who had some – who has some offensive ability too, 
you, you could see a, a pretty smart organization like the Cardinals a little bit hesitant to give him a try at shortstop, even though I think that traditionally he had not made a lot of errors there. Was known as one of those sorts of guys, like you said about Peralta, but even probably, you know, not quite to that degree because he doesn't have years of major league experience under his belt, who can make the plays that are to him, but outside of that range, maybe less so. Right. Yeah, I think uh, teams are probably more lenient with guys who have the physical skills to play it, have the range, have the arm. You look at it and say, if the consistency improved, if the if the errors go down, this plays at shortstop. Versus a guy like Garcia, where you don't, you, it's unlikely that a guy who doesn't have range is going to add range. You, <laughs> right, you're just right, not right. going to take a guy who's physically limited and all of a sudden he's going to turn into, you know, Omar Vizquel. That, that happens less often than a guy who with mental lapses cuts down on those or, you know, learns how to read the ball better off the bat or whatever. So I think uh, in general teams will have a much longer leash with the air prone uh, with a guy uh, like Billy Hamilton or B.J. Upton or whoever uh, before they move them to another position. And then they will, if they just look at a guy and be like, you just physically can't do this, you need to go to a less demanding position. Now, with regard, uh, of course, back to Mookie Betts. This is, I think that we're going to dedicate this. This is a Mookie Betts episode, it appears. Uh, maybe touch on something later on else, but uh, but Mookie it is for the moment. Um, <clears throat> you've, I think you've probably paid attention to it longer than I have. The sort of paths that players take from, uh, you know, from prospects to to major leaguers and 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 what happens in between. Uh, last year. Even at this time, I think it's fair to say, I, th- I don't think I'm telling tales out of school by saying so, Mookie Betts uh, was a player who at least hadn't been hadn't been named on uh, any sort of a, the more notable top 100 prospect list, who was demonstrating a fantastic uh, defense-independent offensive skills and maybe uh, just sort of uh, unadjusted um, you know, slash stats as well. Uh, and they, and therefore ended the season, um, ended the season finally having gotten to high A. Uh, I was actually I actually had the opportunity to see him outside of DC uh, last fall, which is great. And then uh, and I think entered the, he entered the season still not at the top of like the Red Sox uh, prospect charts, for example. And now, you know, it, it's been a question since almost day one of the season. When is when is we gonna, when are we going to see Mookie Betts in the major leagues? Yeah. And I guess uh, how typical is this path? Uh, I don't know if you can recall any other players who have taken this before. Or is this just one of the – I mean, for every for as many prospects there are, that's as many paths as there are to the major leagues. Well, I think that's true. Uh, I do think that Moogie is kind of an example of the distinct challenge of prospect analysis in the hit tool. And I think this is – Maybe the kind of conundrum of prospect analysis is there's basically one skill that's more important than any other skill, and that's hitting. If you can hit, generally you can play in the big leagues, you know, with some extent. You have to be able to, you know, at least move. Uh, right. Well, if you can hit and also you play uh, a defensive position on the more difficult side of the spectrum, that's right. a great player. That's, that's fantastic. But I think when scouts look at guys like Mookie Betts, and not just scouts, statistical analysts, prospect experts, whoever, the entire scouting community, when they look at a guy like Mookie Betts, it's not entirely clear how good the hit tool is right away. And I think like Corey Dickerson is a, is another pretty good example of this. Is like I was reading his old scouting reports uh, the other week. Uh, it was drafted uh, the 25th round or something like that. And the scouting report was basically like, yeah, it's a good bat. 
but there's not a lot else there, and so the bat's going to have to carry him. He's going to have to play a corner spot, uh, and we're not sure how good the bat is. And then Corey Dickerson hit all the way through the minor leagues. At every stop, Corey Dickerson was one of the league's best hitters, and the scouting report was always the same. It was like, the bat's fine. We don't see a lot of other stuff. Uh, you know, kind of a one-dimensional player, and the bat's not special. He's not going to be a huge home run guy. He's just going to be, a, you know, a decent hitter, maybe a fourth outfielder. Um, and then, you know, all the way through, Corey Dickerson just destroys AAA, never considered a top prospect, never even ranked in the Rockies' top ten. Uh, and since he's been called up since the middle of last summer, he has, uh, like, a 135 WRC plus or something. Like, he's been one of the top 20 or 25 hitters in baseball. Uh, as a, you know, he's a little older. You think he's 25. But as a, basically a, his rookie year, Corey Dickerson has been as good as Carlos Gonzalez or something. And, you know, it's like this guy just fell through the cracks because scouts weren't able to look at him and say, we are sure that this guy's a monster hitter. They, you know, it's not like he was Xander Bogarts or one of these guys where you could just say, this guy's going to hit. We have no question about it. Um, there's guys like Betts and Dickerson and some of these guys where it's an open question how much they're going to hit. And no one can really know in advance until you watch them and you get a track record. And then after you've seen them do it for several years, it becomes self-evident where you say, we can't deny that this guy's <laughs> yeah. a preternatural hitter. Like, there's a hitting skill that he has that we cannot uh, question any longer. And Betts is basically one of these guys who just had to show that he could do it over several years. And so he did it in the low minors, and he did it in the high minors, and now everyone just agrees this kid can hit. And it drastically changes the profile of this prospect. <laughs> if he goes from a guy who, you know, might be a below-average hitter or, you know, even an average hitter to a guy who looks like, you know, could be one of the, the top average hitters in baseball, high contact, lots of walk speed. Um, you know, I think it's kind of Jose Altuve also fits into this bill, right? Like Altuve was never considered a great prospect because of his limited physical stature and limited power, and no one was really sure how well Altuve's bat would translate to the big leagues, and now he's hitting 360. And, uh, you know, I think guys like this, you can't really tell in advance because there's a lot of these types of guys who fail too. You know, they hit... 380 in the minors, they come up and then get exposed in the big leagues. I think scouting the bat and the hitting tool is the hardest thing to do in baseball. And uh, it makes the biggest difference in, in how good you are. So the most difficult thing is also the most important thing, which makes prospect analysis pretty challenging. Well, because we, I think we've discussed this here before, and I think there's a, there's a good piece somewhere on the Internet about it, and I'm totally, I'm whiffing on that pretty hard. Um, but the idea that the the ease of I mean not not that any of it's easy but if you're just sort of just like certain you know metrics become reliable uh, in fewer plate appearances or batter's face than other metrics uh, certain sort of scouting or scouted tools uh, become reliable in that in that fast in you know more quickly and and so you know if you're looking at a pitcher's velocity right that's pretty easy you know maybe it might vary slightly one start to the next. But if you're scouting a pitcher and you see that he throws 95, and you could say, well, this is a trait that major league pitchers have is throwing 95. Yeah. But what you're suggesting with regard to batting is a kind of a, a nuanced idea, right, where you say, well, to what degree will all of his disparate batting skills, and that's his ability to tell a ball from the strike, his ability to make contact with the ball, his power on contact, whether it be in the form of a home run, or maybe even more importantly, like, is, you know, his power on contact to the degree to which it will influence his um, betting average or ball in play, how will all of those traits coalesce into, and what will they look like when he's facing major league pitching? That's the difficult thing. 
Yeah, and I think there's no question the velocity is an easy thing to tell. Speed is a pretty easy thing to tell. There are things that you can scout very quickly, even, you know, inexperienced uh, people who are just turning on a baseball game for the first time and be like, oh, that guy runs fast. I mean, it's not that difficult to tell these athletic feats. It is difficult to uh, determine how how well a guy is going to consistently make contact and how well he's going to drive the ball. And I think, you know, as much as we, I think, are probably all like Mookie Betts in the sense that we think he's going to be a pretty good major league player, it's not clear what kind of power he's going to hit for. And I think looking at kind of the list of comparable players of, uh, you know, comparable, comparable skill sets, um, you know, last night I was playing around with the leaderboards and, uh, you know, you see guys who came up uh, at a young age, 21, 22, who controlled the strike zone and had moderate power but weren't big-time power guys. And you like you can get really excited about Roberto Alomar and Joe Maurer and uh, Bernie Williams and Gary Sheffield. Like, those are some really great players. And then there's Greg Jeffries and Edgardo Alfonso, and there's, like, the other spectrum of uh, Melky Cabrero's on that list. Like, you have guys who never developed more than gap power, or, you know, didn't become, uh, you know, big time home run guys. And, and with a guy like Betts, I think the, probably the safe expectation would be based on his size. He's never going to be a big home run guy. So maybe in his case, the ceiling is Shane Victorino, where, uh, you know, he's a 10 or 15 home run per, per season guy, uh, but it's 40 doubles and 40 stolen bases and a really good defense and, and he hits 320. And, you know, that's a super valuable player but probably not Gary Sheffield. And so I think it's one of those things with a guy like Betts is we're not exactly sure where the power is going to fall. Um, Dustin Pedroia is another example, not to keep comping him to Red Sox, but right. of, a, of a little guy who comes up and no one's really sure how much power he's going to hit for. And then, you know, Pedroia learned how to take advantage of the green monster better than anyone else. had, you know, an MVP career. Right. Yeah, another name that uh, I think that it's almost as though we've we've – uh, implied his existence. The fact that we haven't invoked his name directly is uh, uh, Tommy Lastella. Right. Uh, of course, T- Tommy Lastella. I mean, if, if if you know, on the topic of players who don't really have any uh, tools, and certainly you know who you know, if you're reading a scouting report of him, you'd say, yeah, he. You wouldn't even necessarily say he's got a great bat. You would say he's got a great eye, right, and ability to make contact. But the, from a Scouting point of view, the chances that Tommy Lastella would be, uh, you know, an average or better major leaguer uh, were low. However, the projections, for example, which, you know, tend to look at, um, you know, fielding independent metrics, I, I think probably a little bit more intensely, uh, have always been more optimistic about him. Um, and, you know, he's already he's, – he's one of the few players in the majors at this point. I think maybe A.J. Ellis is the only other one who's uh, – Who's posted a better differential between his his walk and strikeout rate, uh, and yet, I mean, he's even uh, further down this spectrum this, of this type than than Betts is because he's uh, probably fringy defensively where he is. Yeah, and I think Listello is kind of an interesting. Uh, example for bets on the power side because Lestella has been basically a league average hitter in the big league since the Braves called him up with very little power. I think his ISOs under 100. Uh, Betts was like running 200 ISOs all the way up through double A. It fell down to like 130 in AAA, um, in a smaller sample. That was like 75 bats or something. But you know, Betts hit for real power in the minor leagues. Now a lot of that was doubles and triples. It wasn't necessarily home runs, but he did hit some home runs. Uh, and I think we we should expect that Betts is going to hit for more power than Lestella going forward. So if Lestella can be an average hitter just based on controlling the strike zone and making a lot of contact, 
Uh, and we think Betts has more power and better defense and, and more speed and probably has field bases at a pretty high clip. Um, you know, this is a pretty exciting offensive player overall, or a pretty exciting overall player. Uh, I do think, though, if if you project Mookie Betts as a 120 ISO guy versus a 170 ISO guy, that's going to make a dramatic difference. That's, you know, that's the, the difference between being Martin Prado and Roberto Alomar. I mean, obviously there's a lot of defensive difference in there as well, but, you know, if you hit for power with this skill set, if Betts, you know, bit, turns into a 50 doubles and 15 home runs guy, that's got a chance of the Hall of Fame. Like, you know, you'd have to sustain this for 20 years, but that's a kind of a Hall of Fame skill set. Um, you know, if he hits 30 doubles and five home runs, now he's like, you know, maybe an above average regular, maybe he's Denard's fan or something. If, if, now if the Red Sox had had, uh, they have right now about a 12% uh, chance of winning the division, according to uh, the playoff odds at the site. If they had dramatically, uh, dramatically greater odds or dramatically um, lower odds, worse odds, how would that have affected their uh, decision to promote bets? Uh, well, I think if they had dramatically better odds, it would probably be because they didn't have as many holes in their roster <laughs> than guys were actually hitting. Right. Uh, so, you know, maybe Shane Victorino wouldn't be hurt and Jackie Bradley wouldn't be uh, an offensive sinkhole and maybe Dustin Pedroia wouldn't be struggling. And so th- those would be the kinds of things that would factor into the Red Sox having better odds of making the playoffs would have necess- made it less necessary for them to promote bets as kind of like a, we need some injection of life into this team. Um, but I think realistically, Betts was probably ready for the big leagues. I think when you look at this skill set, um, you know, the high contact, good plate discipline, gap power, these guys don't have huge kind of learning curves where they come up to the big leagues and be like, oh, curveballs, I've never seen one of those before, and they look stupid for three months and they have to go back to AAA. Like, I think there's a pretty good chance that Mookie Betts is going to be a, you know, three-win player from the start. Like, he's going to be a, an average hitter, a great base runner, and a pretty good defender, uh, at least once he learns the outfield. Um, and that's, you know, that's a valuable player to have in the big leagues, and it's not going to take him that long. He's kind of like the Gregory Polanco skill set, where it's like he can step in right away and be a good major league player. Uh, so I think, you know, regardless of how the Red Sox were doing, if you have a good major league player at AAA, you probably can use them on your big league roster. You know, what, sorry, it's, uh, it's uh, what, um, I don't know if you could think of any analogs off the top of your head. Players who have been, uh, promoted to the big leagues at a position that was decidedly not their own. Uh, what, what happened to them, for example, in the season following that? I mean, I, I could think of instances where it's occurred with pitchers, for example, like when Jonathan Papelbon was called up, having, I think, mostly only ever started in the minor leagues and then became a reliever pretty quickly. Maybe a similar thing happened to Neftali Feliz. Uh, but I don't know if I can necessarily off the top of my head think of any um, offensive players to whom it's happened. Yeah, so I think generally it it's happens with guys who are defensively limited. So I believe Miguel Cabrera was playing uh, uh, third base in the minor leagues when the Marlins decided to call him up, and they needed an outfielder. And so they said, hey, Miguel Cabrera, you're an outfielder with, like, no training. He may have played, like, a game or two in the minors in the outfield before they promoted him and made him their left fielder. And that was a disaster because Miguel Cabrera was a big guy. It was, you know, you look at Miguel Cabrera and she, no one thinks, like, there's a guy who should play the outfield. Uh, even when he was younger, he wasn't quite so large. But he, you know, no experience, not a great athletic player, not a great defender to begin with. Um, but I think that we have examples of teams just kind of 
throwing caution to the wind. And today, August Figgerstrom did a really fun post on Brock Holt, who the Red Sox basically just did this with. He was also a middle infielder in the minors, and they called him up and said, you're going to play everywhere. And they literally just taught him how to play the outfield in the big leagues. And he, you know, he's made some spectacular plays, he's made some awful plays, but, uh, you know, I think what we see generally is that players will play up to their athletic ability. And if they don't have any, they'll play down to their <laughs> lack of athletic ability. Uh, but you know, if you take a guy and say, you know, all we really need you to do is track the ball, uh, and a lot of times these guys have shagged balls in the outfield or they played outfield earlier in there. It's not like they've never seen a ball in the outfield before. Uh, they can go out there and get the gist of it. They're not gonna be great right off the bat, but, it's not that unusual, I think, for a guy like Betts or, um, to come up with little experience and, and to be fine defensively. But, yeah, but do you expect him to find his way to the middle infield or maybe center field next year if, if he proves to have a you know, competent or better um, uh, run here with the Red Sox? I think center field is probably his long-term position uh, as long as he stays in Boston. I mean, I think... You know, there's some chance he could move back to second base if the Red Sox ended up using him as a trade chip, which I think they would only get used if they could get like Giancarlo Stanton or someone of that ilk and, and maybe not even, maybe at this point they wouldn't include him even in a Stanton deal. Um, but I think unless he's traded out of Boston, he's not going back to second base. You know, Pedroia's got that locked down for the rest of the decade. So if he stays with the Red Sox, his, his future's in the outfield. Then it's a question of do you rather have him in center and right? And I think his skill set probably profiles better in center field. Uh, Shane Victorino is under contract again for next season, so assuming Victorino is healthy, they're going to want to play him. Bradley hasn't really stepped up to earn the job, um, so I think you know more realistically their their future alignment is Bradley on the bench as a defensive replacement with Victorino and right and uh, bets in center, and then, you know, when Victorino's contract runs out, if Bradley's made some improvements and looks ready to go, he's probably a better defender. Maybe they would move bets to right and play Bradley. If Bradley hasn't made enough improvements, they'd just go get another right fielder. Yeah, that's frustrating about Jackie Bradley. He's, uh, I mean, he's he's posted uh, good minor league numbers, and he seemed like he'd be ready. Yeah, I think he's one of those guys where, uh, he hasn't made contact at all in the major leagues this year. I think he's running a 30% strikeout rate. And yeah. if you, if you don't hit for power, you can't strike out. I mean, you just can't. Like that, these two things don't go together if you want to be a good major league hitter. You have to do one or the other. You have to hit for power, you have to make contact. Um, and you know, until he, since he's not going to hit for power, he has to improve his contact rate. He basically has to cut his strikeout rate in half. Uh, which is not an easy thing to do. Right. Yeah. All right, Cameron. I uh, I think wow, yeah, you've satisfied your obligations. What do you think about that? I I feel satisfied. Hey, now listen. I want I want to ask you. you uh, at one point, we spoke, and you were on your way. I think that afternoon to go to see uh, the U.S. play their first match. That was the one against Ghana. At that, uh, there's a particular bar in Winston Salem. We have a small batch brewing coming. Yeah, right. Small batch brewing. Now, yeah. I'm curious. If you have, uh, re- if you return there for either of the next uh, two matches, or if you have plans of going, uh, what for? I think tomorrow's match against Belgium. Yeah, so I haven't returned to small batch. Mostly the second game was on a weekend, uh, Sunday evening, so it was uh, going to be much more crowded than the previous weekday, uh, and it was already quite crowded. Um, so that one I watched uh, from somewhere else. Uh, I don't remember actually where I watched that game. Uh, and then the last game last Thursday, 
uh, like everyone else, based on our Fangraphs traffic, was not reading Fangraphs. Uh, <laughs> I I felt compelled to at least still be able to work, so I needed to go somewhere with Wi-Fi and a table. Uh, so I went to a sports bar that was much less crowded uh, that allowed me to watch the game and keep an eye on the fact that no one was reading Fangraphs during the game, <laughs> uh, which was a good educational experience. We won't be publishing any content tomorrow during the World Cup because we know that none of you are going to be reading the site. Uh, so tomorrow I may journey back to Small Batch. Uh, we right. will have to see. It will partially depend on the dog and the wife and uh, the other commitments. Uh, but there's a decent chance that I will end up back in Small Batch tomorrow. No, wait, I, I have no uh, interest in prying into uh, the, the traffic numbers. But besides the U.S. batch, I'm wondering if you feel like uh, Fangraphs readers are distracted a little bit from baseball by the by the tournament. So I don't... I mean, we only saw a dramatic dip last Thursday. Even the, I mean, I think the, the qualifying matches, we didn't see huge dips. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the group stage, when the U.S. played a weekday afternoon game, we saw, it was basically weekend traffic. I was like, where did all our readers go? Right. Uh, but for the rest of the time, like the non-U.S. games, we have not seen a huge dip. Uh, we, you know, like, I think there, there could be an argument that, like, maybe there's a, some small portion of our readership is, uh, you know, less interested in baseball at this time because of the World Cup, but it's not a dramatic difference. But when the U.S. was playing on Thursday at noon, uh, that, that made a huge difference. Right, right. I've actually watched that, uh, um, I watched that match at a beer garden in the Prenzlauerberg neighborhood of Berlin. Surrounded by Germans, <laughs> it was it was daunting, especially when Thomas Mueller scored. It was frustrating. Well, I think so. Is, I guess this is an open question: How much were they actually rooting for a win? Because they, I mean, I think everyone kind of knew Germany was through, right? Like the odds of the U.S. beating Germany when they had no incentive to do so were very low. Yeah, right. But I think it's hard, right? It's hard to. On the one hand, you have the calculations, um, even if they're not like you know, particularly difficult calculations. But on the other hand, like, you have the actual match unfolding before you. And I think it's pretty easy to develop an emotional connection to it, regardless of the consequences. Okay, so people were actually, like, stressed out over the game. I would picture, like, the Germans being like, yeah, this is basically in the bag. Yeah, well, I don't think they were worried, but they were happy when... They were happy when... uh, When Germany scored. I I, I, I was stressed out because... uh, uh, well, I guess Portugal, because Portugal got sort of an early lead, but then Ghana tied it, which was right. kind of frightening. Yeah, so you probably didn't, I mean, since you were watching with Germans in a beer garden, you probably didn't get the U.S. feed of the announcers, I'm assuming. Uh, it was kind of interesting listening to how poorly they understood the tiebreaker scenarios, because Portugal scores early, which was amazing for the U.S. I mean, that, like, a dramatic, uh, Portugal winning made it almost guaranteed the U.S. was going to th- go through based on Portugal's bad goal differential. So the announcers correctly identify, oh, Portugal has taken a one nothing lead. This is very good for the U.S. This is great news. And then Ghana ties the game. They're like, this is also good news for the U.S. I'm like, that is horif- horrifically wrong. Like, Ghana <laughs> scoring was terrible for the U.S. and made it very nerve-wracking because if Ghana would have won the game, uh, and I think if they had won 2-1, to they would have advanced. And so uh, Ghana scoring was like a, you know, a, a not a death blow, but a really serious... Uh, negative impact on the U.S.'s odds, and the odds were like, good news! Right. So, uh, you know, to, to see the, the professionals who were supposed to understand this, and you would think, uh, would have prepared to understand, you know, based on the, the score differential, you know, if Ghana wins 2-1 and the U.S. loses 1-0, nothing Ghana goes through, this would have been a good thing to, to know ahead of time, and they missed it. They whiffed on it, which I found quite surprising. Right. 
Well, uh, you uh, you probably are aware of two things. Uh, you you might be aware that France uh, France's match starts in 15 minutes. You might so also you be have aw- to go right now. You might also be aware that uh, my wife is a traitor. <laughs> my uh, my wife Callie is especially I think you know because she enjoys France and the French. I don't necessarily understand why. But uh, she's participated in the the drama of this event, so she actually, I will say, is a little bit more connected to France's trajectory through the World Cup than the United States. Well, I think it's understandable. She she speaks French. She lives in France. I mean, yeah. you know, I think this is a, an understandable treachery. Right. Well, all right. Well, I, I'm glad that you know you you have such a, a broadness of thought maybe that I don't have. You know. Plus, she's my wife, so I always uh, look at her suspiciously anyway. That is the key to a strong marriage. It is. That's true. That's yeah. true. It's what Jesus says. Um, uh, well, I don't think he did, actually, but, you know, uh, maybe, maybe he thought it and no one wrote it down. It might be. Is it, is it maybe one of the, the Gnostic Gospels? I'm yeah, it could, could be an addition to a later, an yeah. addendum. <laughs> yeah, was it, that might have been the, was it the Council of Chat? Chalcedon? The Chalcedon? Chalcedonian Council? Yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah, right, all right. All right, Dave Kim, you, uh, you whoa, look at that. Anyway, uh, we'll get this up. But thank you very much. Uh, stick around for a second, but Managing Editor Dave Cameron, you're, you're a saint. Thank you for participating. You're welcome. All right, that's Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Testouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.